they wanted to send a government representative with me to make sure I didn't touch any snakes, <laughs> which is just freaking ridiculous. I mean, I, I kind of get it. If you, you don't want people poaching these things either, you don't know if they'd be loosey goosey or, you know, stiff rule, you know, you got to be here. You're going to be here an hour and a half. I said, you know what? I was about to cancel the whole thing. And I said, okay, we'll have a meeting with them and see how it goes. They didn't show up to the meeting. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. From the Ground Up podcast episode number whatever. We are Joe and Melissa. If you guys are new to our podcast and everything, this is our way to um, introduce people to the world or learn more about different species and different projects and different people. And yeah, that's our weekly thing we do for all the new people. And if you would like to get a sticker on our fancy new background (laughs) here, which Dan just pointed that out immediately that it's fancy but if you guys want to send us a sticker uh, message us on instagram or facebook or any of that and i'll give you i wish we had a p.o box we so. need a definitely need to get philly herpeticulture oh i don't like, know if matt has stickers i feel like he does i don't know we'll have to reach out yeah. to him right now we just have tony jerome's and and austin's over there i guess i should say That's everyone's name. sorry <laughs> ian of snj reptiles and austin of rage beard reptiles so yes. i mean we're like the 30th people in the world to do the stickers we're not new or creative but let's keep it up we're the only people that Ryan's show saying it in a he podcast. gave us a sticker i don't even know what he's oh now i know what he's talking about how dare you sir i will not put that on the wall i don't know oh <laughs> yes i know i threw that out it didn't even make it home what you threw it out yeah i don't want that no i wanted it at least it was, it was i think funny. he gave us two and i maybe i don't how know dare I, threw it, I threw it on the ground i said disrespect I don't want that. okay let's people don't know what we're talking about this is weird um <laughs> ryan says he hates you well i hate that animal um wow okay this is so off topic let's talk about our stuff guys if you um live in the philly area we will be at the oaks pa show november 9th and if you live in the new york area we will be at the white plain show november 10th and then if you live we'll be significantly more tired at white plains than we will be at oaks so if you want to bring us you know (laughs) red bulls or coffees we wouldn't turn them down um, and if you live in the Philly, Gettysburg, Philly suburb areas, we will be in the, at the Gettysburg show November 23rd. I think that's it. It's a very busy November. Yes. Um, if you haven't watched our new video, go check that out. It is um, about Tinley and all the fun stuff we did. And I guess we should talk about this just for the podcast listeners. You did it. We both did it. But more importantly, I was worried about you doing we it. We did it. We had a post Tinley podcast already. We talked about doing oh, it. Oh, yeah. Damn. Forgot <laughs> also, about that. we should say what it is. Yes. Tarantula. <laughs> we both held the tarantula. Yes. We already did that. So, <laughs> um, But yes, we did both uh, hold a tarantula. And if you want to see all the lead up and my heart palpitations going up, leading up to holding the tarantula, that is all in the video. And we even held, well, I held, you didn't end up holding my first anaconda which is weird i've just never had a a green anaconda or i've never had the opportunity to hold a green anaconda it's just kind of random but 
Yes. So definitely check out that video. Um, and check us out. If you don't already follow Snake Discovery, Emily and Ed, we have a little feature in their Tinley video. So check them out too. Anything else? We have t-shirts no. available as always. Oh, and we updated snakes on the website, portcitypythons.com. Oh, yes, so please check out all the new uploads to there. All those prices include shipping. Bam. We did it. Okay. You ready to We got all of our, uh, what do you call that in order? I don't know. But we did it. We ducks got out of the row. way. We got our ducks <laughs> in a row. <laughs> eyes cr- t- I always mess that up. Eyes dotted, T's crossed. Now introduce our guest. So today's guest is a biologist from North Carolina. His name is Nathan Shepard. He takes amazing pictures as well as herp spots pretty much all around the world and especially North America as well as Central America and Mexico and things like that. So Nathan, thank you so much for being here. And uh, can you give us a little intro on what you are or who you are and what you do? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I'm a biologist with the state of North Carolina. Um, But I also, I'm just a passionate field herper as well. Um, I'm also the vice president of the North Carolina uh, Herptological Society. Oh, that's awesome. uh, Which we're putting on our fall meeting in November 2nd. So. So are there multiple like subgroups? I mean, North Carolina is a big state. Are there multiple like subgroups in or there's just one? Just one. Gotcha. Is yeah. it based in Raleigh? It is based in Raleigh, but we, so our fall meetings in Raleigh every year. And then our spring meeting is somewhere different. And we alternate coastal plain, mountains, Piedmont you know, every third year. So. Piedmont triad. Is this yeah, a, is. is it a longstanding herb society? It is. It was, uh, I think it was 76 was when it was made, when it was initiated. Oh, wow. Yeah. We just celebrated our 40th recently. I can't do the math. (laughs) 1617. That's awesome. How long have you been involved with the Herpetological Society? Um, I've been doing it for the past, well, I've been a member since the mid 90s when I was in middle school. Um, but as a vice president, I've been in that capacity for four years. Awesome. Yeah. And I was wondering, because I saw so many pictures on your Flickr where you were super young. And I was like, oh, my God, like, how long have you been doing this? <laughs> well, that leads yeah. us into, let's tell us how you first got into reptiles. Like most people, catching box turtles and water snakes. Um, but I would say, for me, I went to the Greensboro Nature Science Center. And I did Lego camp and I didn't like the people at Lego camp. And so I did reptile camp and I was hooked, you know, got to see a Burmese Python eat. I was like, that, that's amazing. And then from there it was more playing in the woods and then just kind of kept turtles in middle school. Um, got my first, I think I got a, a decay. I kept a decay for a while. Then I got a corn snake, which I still have. He's like 25 years old now. Um, somewhere in like middle school and so since then i had leopard geckos through high school i would keep and breed leopard geckos um and then yeah into college then i went to nc state for undergrad and um oh we, oh, uh, we lost back. you for a moment oh me um yeah i think our internet messed up if you were talking that whole time that's amazing and then you could just keep on going but no we have to backtrack because we didn't hear um, okay, where did we hear him last? He got to see a berm eat. Yes, reptile was, camp. I think that's yeah, the last thing yeah. I heard. Okay. And then in middle school, I um, 
I started, I got my first corn snake. Um, and he's still alive. He's like 25 years old now. Um, and then in high school, I kept him bred leopard geckos. Um, and, um, and then in college at NC States where I got really into field herping. I kind of did it in my backyard, but field herping in the sense of let's go to the sand hills, let's go to the coast, let's, I really want to see a pygmy rattlesnake, let's go look for them, that kind of thing. So just to uh, bring it back a little bit, what exactly is reptile camp? What did you do with <laughs> this? Oh, it was a thing for elementary school kids to go and learn about reptiles. Like, I don't even remember it other than that Burmese python eating. <laughs> I don't think I've heard of anyone else getting to experience a reptile camp. I don't think that's offered too many. Pl- I mean, maybe it is. Probably not. Know. One of the other things I did early in life, and it's hard to remember that long ago, but the Piedmont Environmental Center near High Point, Greensboro, which for people that live across the country, they're not going to know where that is, actually had a herp camp. And it was a three day where you go and you spend the night and you just learn about herps and go find them. That's awesome. That was really what got me going. Oh, childhood Joe would have loved that so much. <laughs> no, instead I went to farm camp where I bailed hay and milked cows. Wait, I'm sorry. Farm <laughs> camp? That still sounds cool. <laughs> that sounds like free manual labor. Yes, it was exactly <laughs> yeah, that. And then we also slept in the woods and did manual labor and then slept in the woods. I mean, it was fun. And, and your parents paid for this? And like we played in the creek and... <laughs> and made things out of the clay and yeah and it and it was like half a mile from my house so <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah i don't know okay reptile camp or her her i mean what did you do like, what i went to sports camp you know nerd yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean okay, childhood you know. me would not have liked herp camp or reptile camp so because adult me didn't until i met you <laughs> true So how did you go from, I mean, how did you kind of get connected into that field herping realm? So in undergrad, I had a really good opportunity. I met a few people that were my age and had the same passion. And one of them is, some people might know, Kevin Messenger. Um, I can't remember his field herp form. Sistru Guru, maybe. But uh, he does a lot of work in China now. But he had a project in South Carolina going and uh, basically road cruising, doing mark and recapture studies on snakes in the sand hills. And so I'd go down there and help him with that project. And that's kind of, I mean, I hurt before that, but that was my first time, you know, marking an animal, you know, finding, I'm trying to think like a mud snake. That was my first mud snake during that era. So, and, you know, it was the first time in my life where I had like friends that were into the same thing. I'm sure for a lot of people pre-internet, it was hard to find reptile people <laughs> that were into reptiles. Now it's yes. fairly easy. <laughs> right. And so your first kind of how you got into it was in a pretty legitimate way then. So was he like a herpetologist or field biologist? Uh, he was a little ahead of his time. He was just, um, he, yeah, he, no, he just got hooked up with the right people. And we were at a National Wildlife Refuge doing herp surveys by ourselves. Um, it was all under the guise of his advisor, Dr. Heatwall, who um, lives in Australia now, but he's a big-time herpetologist. 
So can you enlighten us on, I mean, it's sad. I know so much about North Carolina, but nothing about the Sand Hills. Like, why are they such a big, you mentioned them a couple of times. Like, why are they such a like interesting place? And like, why do people, why is it such a big hurt place? Um, you really have a lot of coastal plain species coming into, I wouldn't call it the Piedmont. It is part of the coastal plain, but it's right at the fall line. So you can go quickly from very Piedmont looking habitat to where you're in longleaf system. And so longleaf pine is the predominant coastal plain, southeastern um, forest type. And to get that that close to Raleigh um, and along that fall line, you have like interesting soils. So you get really xeric. Uh, well-drained soil so you just get you know this place called the sand hill so it's a rolling topography of sand and it's a neat you get a lot of different species okay um uh, to name a few that people are interested in like pine snakes um but you also get you know uh neat things like pine barren tree frogs um they're they're found in the sand hills in North Carolina as long and the pine barrens in New Jersey and down off the in Florida in the Panhandle, mm-hmm. but you, you get them in that area. So, and what are some other like highly sought out species there? Well, southern hognose is one. Um, there's a few. Some are most of them are protected, but there's tiger salamanders in that area. Um, there's other things that are on the edge of their range. So you get like, they're not quite there, but they're in a few places like maybe salamanders, which is a salamander not a lot of people really know about. It's only, it's endemic to North and South Carolina and a little bit of Virginia. Um, and you know, there's stuff like that. Um, trying to think of other really rare things. There's a lot of things that we consider priority species, like even barking tree frogs that aren't necessarily rare, but they use habitats that are definitely declining. Um, But yeah, it's just a lot of species in that area. And when you move east, because of the way North Carolina, a lot of the coast is with bays and stuff, you get a lot less sand ridges. So you don't get as much. um, It's neat because it's just so much of that topography and that soil type. Right. And is there like totally different species that you have to look forward to in areas just outside of that as well? Yeah. You get just outside of the sand hills and you start picking up southern coarse frog, which south of North Carolina is a really common species, but here it's very rare. Um, and then gopher frogs. Gopher frogs are right on the sand hills, but they're, ma- they're mainly a coastal plain species. Um, but yeah, and they're they're just not doing good overall throughout the whole range. But but yeah. And personally, for you, what are your favorite species that you could find out there? One of my favorite is pine barren tree frogs. Um, it's just a neat little frog. I spent a few summers doing work on those. I did some radio track on the. I was radio tracking those um, and trying to find new sites and. I just had a lot of fun going out in the middle of the night all all summer long till like two in the morning looking for them. So we're being slow. We're trying to pull up a picture. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a oh. little bit of like a romantic thing with pine barrens and the fact that like it's just a fun. Even if I don't hear them and I just go out, it's like I'm in that habitat. 
I don't know how to describe it, but yeah. Yeah, so here I have the picture of this guy right here, the Pines Barrens tree frog. That is an amazing picture. Well, what are they doing here? <laughs> so that that is um pair and amplexus, of course. But females are hard to find. You tend to find the males calling. Um and that was that of that year that was the first female I found. And they were actually not together when I found them initially. I went in with a researcher for Florida State University, and she was doing a genetics look at all all across the range. And we found a brand new site, and there was a we found eleven in like fifteen minutes, which is whoa, which is kind of ridiculous. So where are the females usually? They're just silent. So you just kind of have to when you see a calling male, you have to pause for a minute and think and look kind of around it. That female was when I found it right next to the male. They were about to hook up, but they just hadn't locked up yet. And that female looks considerably larger than that yeah. male. Are they sexually dimorphic? A little bit. Uh, females are larger. They're about a gram, gram and a half larger when they're gravid. Gotcha. So, I mean, and that might be also a young male with a mature female. It could be, yeah. Yeah, they don't they don't live long. We don't have a lot of data for wild populations, but there was Riverbank Zoo in South Carolina was doing captive breeding and they tend to suggest they don't live past on the average like four or five years. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. They had, so they where had are you one from? that lived nine, but yeah. Wow. Very so, quick. <laughs> Very short yeah. lifespan. So where you guys found them, was that like range extension or anything like that? Or is it just it somewhere where you wouldn't? It was, but it was an important location in the fact that we know where there's a lot of South Carolina populations and a lot of North Carolina populations. And so she really wanted genetic samples as close as you could to getting between the two populations. And we went and looked at a historical site that was fenced off. Um, and we didn't hear any calling. And I'd been in the area of this property before and just not heard them. Um, and, and then that night we went out and it was just that night where a lot of them were calling. Um, so can you go through exactly how that works at night and like trying to find these calling males? Like what's the exact, um, method you use there? So I'll, with any time when you're herping, Google earth helps then getting on the ground and looking at those sites, there was, um, there's a county I won't mention in North Carolina where there's no known records. And I went to like 40 historical sites in this county in really a couple counties and didn't find any. And I said, you know what, enough of going to historic sites. I'm going to start like I'm just approaching this. and I didn't know where they were found. I'm just going to try to find a new site. And so a lot of it's going and seeing the habitat during the day. Of course, you can drive around and hear them at night and see the habitat at night. But seeing it during the day, you can see through the trees. You can see where the appropriate, like a seepage slope is, and you just go back at night and see if they're there. So this may be something a little bit um, not in your wheelhouse, but Brian, our friend Brian Holt, I believe he works for the state of Alabama, mm -hmm. and he was just worrying, or he was asking, not worrying, um, were samples taking of those tree frogs from the disjunct populations in Alabama and Florida? They were definitely taken from Florida. So that's not my data set. I was just helping that researcher. So I'm not sure exactly if she got around to sampling Alabama, but she did sample Florida. She 
since she was stationed in Florida. <laughs> but yeah. So basically you're seeing, you're comparing those two animals, seeing if there's some, you know, distinction between looking, the two. Yeah. If there was something distinct or there was a more complex story to tell. Um, and I can't really speak to her results because what I saw was very preliminary. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that is published yet or, or not. And do they all have a, like the same phenotype as far as a, you know, striking green frog like that with yeah. that black stripe? Yeah, pretty much. I've seen anomalies and like, you know, you'll have a stripe that goes across the leg or it'll, it'll go from the eye down to the lip, you know, some weird anomaly, but not, nothing crazy. They don't, there's no orange ones out there or anything like that. But <laughs> Are your ears trained enough? Like you've done enough where like you can recognize like different calls of different types of frogs? For North Carolina, yeah. For the Southeast, yes. And can you reenact them? Oh. I, will, I really wanted to ask if you could reenact <laughs> them, but I wasn't going to. So pine <laughs> barrens are really easy. Like the only thing you get it confused with would be the green tree frog. And you just listen to the two for a minute. They're, they're pretty easy. But things like certain chorus frogs, I've definitely had that night where I go to a site. I'm like, okay, I'm hearing southern chorus frogs. And then later, the next day, I listen to that clip. I'm like, that does not sound like southern chorus frogs. So there are a few species that are similar that sometimes, depending on where you are, you can get, you can kind of be confused. So I was sampling for southern chorus frogs one night, and then I ran into an area where uh, uplands can be. And that got really confusing after like four hours of listening to kind of in and out of both of them. And, you know, and then I had, I would find sites where, well, at least one site where both of them were present, which really drove me crazy. So. But by and large, yeah, yeah. How many years of herping and doing this do you feel like, like, did it take you to really, like, train your ear? So what I think did it, because I did it for years where I would, you know, in the, in the spring or the fall, or, um, listen for frogs. And then after winter comes spring next year, and then I'd forget half of them or I'd get confused. Um, and so it was really the first few years where I was in the field almost the entire year. And I really got to sample. I didn't go out for just a few nights to listen. I was out a lot, like 80%, 70% of the nights. Mm-hmm. And then that really, one year of that, and you pretty much have it in your head. And now every time you go out, are you also recording audio? I try to. I try to either take a visual or acoustic uh, voucher. And then is there some type of like database of frog calls that you use to compare them to? (laughs) No, there isn't. Um, You know, there's a lot of people that have worked with software trying to like where you can throw a frog call in a software and it's going to tell you what's calling. That has just not been perfected. There's some species it works for, but for things like gopher frogs, there's so many things like rain and certain cars driving by that it just doesn't seem to work out. Um, at least that I've seen. I don't have that software. Frog um, voice recognition. Yeah, it's not cheap. Right I feel like you'd have to, yeah, you'd have to get <laughs> some crazy intense, like, mic that, you know, cuts out yeah, those road, on the quality of right, the, an- those of road the, noises, yeah. and you'd have to get so close to the animal that I don't even know how you'd do that. I mean, for just taking, for just when you're 
taking a sample, you're standing there, directional mic gets a really good picture most of the time. Um, but usually in that sense, you know what you're, you're trying to listen for or what you're hearing. It's really people have tried to work on it when they're doing these, what we call frog loggers, where you put it's the box with microphones and you program it to record for two minutes every hour. And so you put those at your pond and you leave them there for like three or four months. And then you have, you know, hours and hours and hours of data or of music to really listen to, you know, like a better word. Then somebody, you kind of want to throw it into a computer and it just tell you the answer. Right. If you like, you know, you put in the sound and you put in what it is and then it like make the, you know, like <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. input all the sounds, you know, and then you make it like look for those same like inflections or I don't know. That people, people have a similar thing and it seems to be a little fleshed out because I think there's more money there. But There's it's still not more money in bats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Who knew? yeah, for bat sampling, yeah, I think so. Um, versus frogs, um, so I think that's fl- more fleshed out. But I don't know. Frogs aren't that difficult. Um, but yeah, I could not tell you one <laughs> one frog. frog sound frog stolen frog. ribbit 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 like. <laughs> That's what I teach my kids, and that's my level of frog sound. Well, it's, it's easy when you start out a year and go from January into April, and you don't start out with, you know, 10 different species at one time. You start out, you tend to just get spring peepers, and then you get your chorus frogs, and then that's only two frogs. And then, you then you know, by March, then, then you got a handful that's coming out, depending on where you are. And these frogs are almost calling like year round, like even in January. So we 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 have winter breeding amphibians, and then we have growing season breeding amphibians, and they yeah they overlap. They don't read textbooks. So <laughs> spring peepers will start calling in the fall whenever it cools down. But by and large, most of the breeding I've seen is like December in North Carolina, December through March for spring peepers. And then you get stuff like southern chorus frogs, ornate chorus frogs, and um, gopher frogs as you're getting further into the year. And then by the time you get you start getting your lows out of the 50s, you could potentially get some um, like uh, some highlands, barking tree frogs, green tree frogs, stuff like that. And once you get those, you're in growing season, and that's usually April. Okay, because our podcast is not linear, I want to back it up a little um, bit. I had a question about frogs. <laughs> Oh, okay. Wait, you ask yours first because mine isn't about frogs. Okay. So those those winter breeders, they're still like active, act normal, yeah. everything like that? Yep. They're just winter breeding um, salamanders as well, tiger salamander. They typically move in the ponds. I think of Thanksgiving, but I've seen them in October moving in the ponds. And their breeding is somewhere between then whenever they get some warm rains. And warm rains in the winter is, you know, a loose term. <laughs> Right. Typically, 50 degrees is that threshold. If it's 50 to 60, and that's, you know, in a warm rain and a good rain, that's not hard to get in the southeast. Um, and that's when you see a lot of movement and breeding and calling, <laughs> all that. Cool. We're showing our amphibian ignorance today, I feel. <laughs> but it's fun to learn new things. I definitely know nothing about things with legs. We Everyone should know that by now. If it has legs, I don't know anything about it. Salamanders barely have legs, man. They still have them. Some of them only have two legs. <laughs> still counts. Still counts. Yeah. Um, okay, so backing up a little bit, what uh, was your degree in college? 
zoology. Zoology. Okay. And um, so part, I can't find my words. For our podcast, we always want people to learn about new animals and everything like that. But there's a lot of people who listen to our podcast that want to do a career in this. Um, yeah. So as a field biologist now, if you could go back, would you do the zoology degree again? Or do you feel like there was another degree that would have lent itself better to what you're doing now? I think I would have had a better GPA if I had done wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think so. I mean, that's kind of a core basic. Either biology, zoology degrees are rare these days. They, I even think at NC State have been lumped in with just biology undergrad degrees. Um, but that that's, you yeah, pretty much have to have that to get most jobs, even crappy $10 an hour temp jobs. Did you ever have the idea that you wanted to go into a zoo or anything like that and be a keeper? I did. I did. I, and then uh, you found how much out. money they make. <laughs> yeah, but... Well, I mean, I didn't make a lot of money for a long time, so it was comparable. Um, I did. My, my, my life, I've always wanted to study the animals as they are on their own terms, you know. But I do see the value in zoo work. I have a lot. I have colleagues, you know, when I was working, um, when, when I was with the Wildlife Resources Commission, I partnered a lot on my projects with the North Carolina Zoology or the North Carolina Zoo. And so they they had they even had staff time come out and help radio track pine barren tree frogs and uh, we were doing head starting for gopher frogs um, and I got them to take that project over so oh wow I think that was a huge win win because my summer was spent doing that <laughs> when I didn't get as much survey work done and now that they could take that over and it was a thing that they could show for their AZA accreditation that now my summer's freed up to do more field work. And their capacity bigger than I was, so they could do more. So, so, so tell yeah. us a little bit more about the Wildlife Research Commission. Uh, Resources Commission. Resources, sorry. Yeah, I worked there for a few years, um, but it's it's um, it's our state's DNR, <laughs> Department of Natural Resources. Gotcha. You may have heard of. I don't know what it is in up north. You know, Pennsylvania, I, I don't know. All I know the states are typically different, yeah. I lived in West Virginia for a while. It was DNR, South Carolina's DNR, but we are Wildlife Resources Commission. Florida is similar. They're Fish and Wildlife Commission. Similar entities. They are charged with a lot of things, but game management is one. They own properties that they manage. That's one of them. We call them game lands here. A lot of states call them WMAs. Um, and then they have biologists that go out, and I was one of them, that went out and did survey work. But, but yeah, it, it was a great job. I had no complaints. It was a good did organization. You have, did you have control of like what you were surveying or like kind of your projects or was it all kind of handed to you? Uh, in those days, I was based in the Sandhills. So it was mainly that. But I also, I was mainly a coastal plain too. So we did surveys on U.S. Fish and Wildlife or not U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Forest Service property. Um, we did surveys on Department of Defense property, um, just it, ride roads in between, it, you know. So it was mainly species that we thought there's some conservation concern or there's an unknown. Um, and ornate coarse frogs and southern coarse frogs were in that category. Of, we don't know what's going on with these species. And what we have found out is ornates are screwed in North Carolina. <laughs> there's oh. not many of them left. Can you explain why that is exactly? 
outside of one piece of property, there's maybe five ponds in the state. Wow. So that's not much. <laughs> Is that just fragmentation? Well, yeah, yeah. Most of the coastal plain um, is ag- agriculture and development. Most of it ag. Um, so you have um, areas where you have a lot of Carolina bays, and then they've been either cut over and filled and ditched and drained um, to make ag. So you get these little fragments, like the nature, uh, uh, the nature Conservancy owns some, and they're just these little pieces here and there that dot the landscape. So there's no connectivity, or very little. Um, and then you go from there all the way to like the coast and that's hundred miles. <laughs> like nothing's crossing that. There's no genetic, you know, yeah, they're not getting there. travel. Yeah. So yeah, it's fragmentation is a big one, but you know, there's continually less and less habitat. That's a big thing. Cause even when we, a lot of these surveys we do, we compare to data mm-hmm. that people from the museum of natural sciences or, universities did 30 20 years ago even 10 years ago in some cases and that's how we can see that there's a decline going on because they would pinpoint different spots that probably don't exist anymore yeah yeah yep it's kind of sad is it just like many other places where you're seeing amphibians imperiled first or are there other animals that are imperiled in that region Usually the things that are most imperiled are things at the edge of their range or they're endemic. So we, so what we call when things are at the edge of the range is peripheral populations. And so what you tend to see ornate chorus frogs are, were found in a lot of states in the southeast. But you started seeing like Mississippi populations, Alabama populations crashing, North Carolina populations crashing. So you start to see this, you know, it's coming in from the peripheral. And I think of Georgia as kind of like you go Georgia Ornate horse frogs are, I wouldn't say common, but they're relatively common. They're secure. And so you see this kind of, that effect. Some species aren't like that. Gopher frogs, you see a little less of that. You see just kind of across the board, they're kind of getting screwed. Um, and the same could be said for southern hognose. There's really only like three metapopulations, like secure metapopulations left. Um, but yeah. So some of it's that peripheral effect and some of it's just everywhere's getting sliced and diced. Yeah, and I had no idea that that southern hognose went up that far, to be honest. I thought you would have maybe yeah. like easterns over there or something. But We got easterns too, but yeah. We got southerns, you know, throughout a lot of the state, actually. Now, they don't still exist in a lot of that state, but but historically. Do any of your albums on your Flickr? Oh, never mind. Joe just pulled it up. <laughs> so is this is this an Eastern? No, it's a Southern. So how can you, because I've seen the ones that I, oh no, that would be a Mexican, I suppose, or I believe it's maybe the same thing. But how do you tell this from an Eastern? So one, the, the easiest thing that I tell people is the nose, the thing, we, you know, the hog nose. They're much more upturned than Easterns. Um, and when you look at them side by side, and I don't know if I might have a photo on there, but it would be an older photo of them side by side. Um, I know there's good examples out there. Um, you can really see it. Southerns have a much more upturned snout. Um, there's also differences with their uh, with the ventral side, Easterns versus Southerns. Um, but the nose is surefire. They're also chunkier. I don't know what it is about Easterns, but they don't, they don't seem as chunky. Um, 
and the pattern. I know Eastern, I've seen spitting images where Easterns look almost just like a Southern hognose, but overall that pattern is fairly distinct. You can get similar stuff with Easterns, but pretty much all Southerns look like that. Okay, so there's not like different phases like you may see Easterns. No, no. In, in Florida and Georgia, I think you can get red, redder animals where that orange that's on that animal might be more of a red, but it's still the classic look. Awesome. And there's a really cool uh, timber rattlesnake right there. Yep. So is that something to wear? Do you guys call the timber rattlesnake in North Carolina? Do you call it the cane break or do you call yeah. it the timber rattlesnake? We call it cane break. So do you think that those should be, because I believe some people believe them to be different subspecies, or I don't know if completely... It used to be. Um, the, the subspecies was sunk a while ago. I personally don't think they should be a different thing. Because um, when you're really getting the nuts and bolts, like timbers range so far west um, that you get a lot of cane break things in other states. Um so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like we have in here in Pennsylvania, we have a black phase and what we call the yellow phase. And the yellow yeah. phase looks much more like your, you know, cane break. Um, yeah, I can see that. We, we, um, we do have timber timbers in our mountains. Um, not, they don't, we don't have yellow ones, yellow ones like Pennsylvania. I know I've seen one in West Virginia that was really yellow. Uh, but we do get occasional black ones that are nice. But I don't. I, for I spend a lot of time in the mountains, but it's mainly salamander hunting. Um, yeah, I haven't really seen that many timbers in North Carolina mountains. It's kind of sad. So, is part of that? You know, the difference is just that elevation. I mean, brings you a different yeah. coloration, or yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know the difference between the yellow and the black side. I don't know. But as far <laughs> as the cane breaks. You just look at the habitat they're living in and you kind of understand why they're that that way. They truly are. Like in the South, we call them cane breaks. That's what they're living in. Bottomlands, swamps, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, and I didn't mean to get that confused because in PA, you can find the yellow and blacks in the same exact spot. So it's okay. just seemingly yeah. kind of random. But uh, I don't know. It's interesting. They're just um, a snake that's found so far throughout the country and have a couple different looks and people all over the place call them different things. And yeah, there's plenty of wives tales and stuff throughout the South about all types of snakes. So it's always fun to talk about that. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I really got a lot of my start working with rattlesnakes in South Carolina and down there, you don't say timber. <laughs> They're steadfast in cane break down there. Um, but yeah. So, and this is, um, is this a pygmy or what is this right here? Yeah, it's a Carolina pygmy. And a lot they... of people call those the lavender phase, but that's just typical of, basically there's a population out near Lake Matamuskeet that's red, and this is more of what everything else in the state looks like. Yeah, and if people can't see on the chat, I mean, this is just a crazy, I mean, it's all often that coloration that people call like Amazon tree bow is lavender, but you say they're not truly purple. I was whole, I wasn't going to say it. We always have an argument. Joe always sees way more lavender than I do. No, I see, like, I see the smallest. You can see where you it. get it. Yeah. I see where they 
get but it also but has like, these like crazy piercing red eyes right but look yeah, hold up the nice. lavender's watch next to that and it does nothing but the eyes are crazy <laughs> and you can see that a lot of these snakes have the same coloration of these of this like uh pine straw that's on the ground there yep yeah and just giving them like these awesome red colorations and then this here would be a northern pine snake. Yep. That one's an interesting looking one, but yeah, northern. Are these pictures all from North Carolina? Uh, probably. <laughs> yeah, that's almost by the tail there. That's a little bit. That coloration is typically indicative of like the southerns. It is. Or Florida's. And then the top is just super black like you would see. on. Um, you know, a very cool, like Kankakee bull or something like that. So that's a cool <laughs> yeah, looking snake. Very dark. In North Carolina, sometimes you can get yellow animals. Really? Yeah, I've seen maybe two, and they've both been dead on the road. But yeah. And our our picture of it seems like you have quite a few pictures here, but are they relatively hard to find? Yeah, they're pretty hard to find. If you really dedicate the time, you can probably find them. But, you know, I had access to properties that were really good for them and methods that, you know, the public back then when I worked for the commission um, that they don't have access to. So and you see a lot of images, but, that, you know, I, I worked and lived down there for three years. That's what I did. <laughs> so that's an amalgamation of, yeah, three yeah. years of work. Yeah. So. What were the kind of, I mean, I guess if you don't mind talking about them, like what are some methods that you could use as a biologist that say, you know, we wouldn't normally have as civilians? <laughs> so for game lands, like we, we had tin and board arrays on some of our properties. Um, that's one. Um, we didn't have a lot of it, but we had some of it. The problem with doing too much of that is people find it and take it. Mm. Or maybe take your snakes. We don't know. But um so a little bit of that, um, and then just um, knowing where the hot spots are. And um, is that is that an animal that you're finding? I mean, can you find them under a tin, or are they mostly hanging out in gopher holes and you just get lucky when they come you out? You get lucky. Yeah, they're not mostly hanging under anything but the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's always been a thing that's been widely talked about is the fact that obviously the longleaf pine forests are imperiled in many different ways. And then so are our pine snakes. But then again, some people say, how are we going to correctly, you know, survey this species or all the pituophis when most of them are just hanging out in holes, you know, 90% of the time. Are we really getting an accurate So what are your ideas? Yeah. Kind of in that vein. People have had luck with differences. Um, there's somebody in South Carolina doing drift fences with cameras, so they're not actively catching the snakes in the drift fence. Because the problem with drift fences is you get a lot of bycatch, um, and you get a lot of things die in drift fences. You know, mm. a shrew that drops in a bucket is going to die because they need to eat all the time for their metabolism. And so, typically, people don't really—I won't say don't like, but we—I don't like to put drift fences out. But I know in South Carolina, they've had success putting camera drift fences out. So the snake can move in, takes a picture, and then they move out. And so no one has to check on it. I mean, every so often. 
but not every day. And you get that image is emailed to you and you know, oh, you know, pine snake got in my um, trap. So that's been shown to be pretty good. I think other people are experimenting with that same method in other areas on different species. Um, but they're so rare that I think the real information we've learned is through radio tracking them. I haven't done much of that work. A colleague of mine has done a decade of that work. Um, that's really shown like where they hang out, how much time they spend underground. We've learned things about nesting activities with them. Um, that's probably been the most beneficial body of work on them. Other than that, it's just, you know, we, we did a market recapture study, but it's, we started that in 2014. That's not long enough when you're only catching, I don't know, just a few a year <laughs> to really tell you much. So that's more of a legacy thing that maybe they'll keep doing that. Um, and they have kept doing that. Um, so maybe that'll tell us something down the line, but yeah, with the, when you have a species you frequently see or you infrequently see so seldom, it is hard to understand the core of their biology and what's going on. Right. Um, and in a lot of the way we rank species, we usually have a tool that go that looks at um, geographic range and how much of that has changed over time. So we have a lot of species in North Carolina. I can't say a lot. A few species in North Carolina that have been listed due to geographic change, not numbers of individuals changing, because we don't really know that with herps. Um, even so, is that, frog, is that like a different? Is it a different? What's the word like ranking? Right. What like, What is a geographic change, basically? No, 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 no. Like, there's the list for the you know the endangered animals by population. Like, that's one thing you can go look up. Is it a separate like list? The ones that are endangered by reduction in geographic range? No, it's it's um all lumped in. So the one we used when we were doing this recently was from the IUCN. Um. It was based on that list, so it's like five things, and one of them is population size. The other parameters and geographic range is what I end up using for some of mine, and some of our other species were listed that way, because you have, you know, the, we know where we have fairly decent records in North Carolina of the historic distribution, and now we kind of know where they are. And so we can look at the historic and now, and how much of a change is that? Is it just a little bit? That's not something to worry about, maybe, but if it's, you know, I, I don't know the criteria, but something like, you know, 50% or 20% or whatever. Then it, then you start looking at listing or whatever. Gotcha. But, yeah. And now, I guess, to can you dive in a little bit more on kind of what you found out during that time about the behaviors of, of pine snakes? <sighs> For me, they don't do much. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> it's hard. So when you're just marking recapture them, you don't really learn too much about the behaviors you're just hoping that data pays off that we're learning something about you know growth rates or um we're recapturing juveniles when they're adults we know something about recruitment of the population um habitat wise um they really need well managed longleaf and when i say well managed longleaf i mean something that's seen a lot of fire um and in the sand hills, you have a lot of pyrophilic oaks, and they seem to really need those pyrophilic oaks. Um, so yeah. I can imagine pyrophilic means easy to burn. It means they do well. They're fine with burning. Oh, okay, so, yeah. so they can burn, survive, and regrow. Yeah. yeah. I've never heard that word, pyrophilic. No, like neither it. have I. <laughs> yeah, like fire. But, um, yeah, so 
I won't get too much into plants, but some of the ones you may have heard of turkey oak and longleaf, that's a pyrophilic oak. It's so a lot of people look at longleaf and there is certain longleaf ecosystems where there's no oaks, but in the sand hills, it's very much a pine oak scrub longleaf system. So those oaks are part of that ecosystem. When you take them out, then you might have you might have changes to what's going on with the animals. So what exactly is it about that that ecosystem? And we see it all throughout the longleaf pines, whether it's up in North Carolina, whether it's in Louisiana or Florida. It seems like they need um, the forest to burn and then obviously be regrown. Why is that so important for so many species? I mean, especially the herbs. Um, it's important for the herbs because the it's really important for everything. The vast majority of biodiversity in longleaf needs fire. It needs to keep longleaf the way we think of the ideal longleaf situation. You have really rich, very diverse herbaceous. So you got wire grass, you get all these different grasses and plants and orchids in the ground. And then you just have longleaf pine as your dominant tree. And that's your typical upland. That is a successional state that you kind of have to keep it in through fire. Um, a lot of people call it a disturbance. Fire disturbs that and keeps it that way. Because if you take fire out, what happens is a lot of the oaks grow up and you start getting it all shaded. Your forbs and your herbs die out or don't do as well, struggle. Um, and because of that, you don't have the habitat that animals need. You don't, you don't have, I mean, it, it does the whole thing. The whole um, food web goes away. If you don't have a lot of herbs, you, you know, rodents, crickets, all that prey source goes away. Um, so it just disrupts everything. And when things disrupt, or even over time, it just leads to things declining. Um, but I tend to think of fire and longleaf as not the disturbance. I think of removing it as the disturbance. Because naturally it burned. When humans came, we stopped it burning. We disturbed it and fire suppressed it. Um, and now are there controlled burns going on in that area? Yeah. Uh, most public land, most of it, has some sort of burn um, regime. Some range from very infrequently um, to very aggressively. Some are just checking a box. Yeah, we burned every five years. Some are trying to think of different ways to do it, um, ways to hit certain habitats to open them up. There's a lot of bottomland areas that people are trying to get fire in to open them back up um so yeah a lot of a lot of game lands that wrc owns um department of defense is doing a lot of burning on their properties the nature conservancy does a lot of burning on their properties and there's a pretty decent private lands prescribed fire group in north carolina that promotes fire in, on private lands so it, it's pretty good but there's still struggles yeah, how are these people so good at controlling this stuff? It's a science. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of crazy that, I mean, you would think that people who live around there would be so freaked out. It'd be so hard to get them to, to buy into this. Yeah, there, there are places where it's really hard to get fire done because smoke is going to hit, you know, a housing area where they're half a million dollar homes and those people don't want fire. Or, you know, it's going to go over a highway. There's a project I've been helping with where it's a big Carolina Bay and um, they're having troubles burning it because it's right next to a major highway. Hmm. So. 
Yes, there's almost nothing you can do about that. Yeah, there. it just depends. You get the right approach, maybe. I think they're working something out, but we'll see. Okay, Ryan has a question. Um, he said, now with people, are we seeing progression from longleaf pine to a more deciduous environment, which could be hostile to shade intolerant pines, therefore reduction of pine snake habitat? I don't even know what he's asking. <laughs> I just read words. Pines and pine snake habitat. Um, yeah, typically with longleaf, it tends to turn into a, a, a deciduous forest, but on the dry side. You don't, get, you don't tend to get red maples, that kind of mesophilic stuff. You tend to get like um, southern red oaks, a big one. Those kind of things start creeping up. Now, if that longleaf has any kind of water, like if it's a flatwoods, you will get sweet gums are a huge one. Uh, we call them sweet gum forests, and we go. I've been to a number of historic sites where you know somebody'd be like, "Oh, this is a this used to be a gopher frog pond." I look at them like it's a sweet gum forest. There's nothing you can do because sweet gums have just overtaken it. Mm. Um, another one's loblolly pine, which isn't bad if it's where it naturally occurs, which is lower on like the bottomlands. But when it gets up in the uplands, it just seeds so aggressively, and without fire, those seeds just take up and shade out everything. Um, so. Those loblollies are fairly easy to deal with, but sweet gums are a nightmare. There's several projects where we have sweet gums around wetlands that we just can't get. There's not a way to get fire through them; they don't burn well. It's just a pain. Can't um, okay. sound like a dumb question, but you can't chop them down. No, because they stump spray or stump sprout. So you, you chop them over, and they just sprout again. <laughs> and by the next year, they'll be six feet high. I mean, they just. They, Jeez. They just Ridiculous, yeah. They're a pain. And so those is, is yeah. keeping other type of like trees and stuff like that, is that just much of a concern of losing trees completely? Because you know, you always hear like plant a tree, whatever. You right. Would you rather have the wrong tree or no tree at all? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it depends. If you're planting sweet gums in the wrong places, you're not doing any good. But most people aren't doing that. Um, yeah, you hear that, you know, the prairie, I know a lot of people that work with prairies out West and they're like, you know, don't plant another tree. We need to keep this open. Um, but yeah, in Longleaf, if you manage it right, there's plenty of trees. There's plenty of ways of carbon for carbon to get synced in that ecosystem. But yeah, it's not so much how many trees you have that gives you how many pine snakes on the ground. <laughs> It's what combination of speed. It's really biodiversity. We're not managing for pine snakes. We're not managing for this. We're managing for every, like, di very diverse areas. So typically, you know, I was in a gopher frog pond looking at egg masses years ago, and I stepped on a chicken turtle, and a red cockaded woodpecker, which is endangered species, flew over my head. And in that one square foot, there's three rare species right there. But it's because of that whole area and how well it's managed that you get all of that diversity. Pine snakes are in that area. Like, there's a lot of things in that area. Okay, silly question. Why is a chicken turtle called a chicken turtle? I don't know. Oh, I just looked it up. Never mind. <laughs> the name chicken turtle refers to the taste of their meat, which used to be oh, popular in supermarkets. Wow. I mean, that... Never heard of a turtle tasting like chicken, but okay. Yeah, they're an interesting turtle. 
Isn't really- that weird how like we've we've very much gotten away? I guess people in Louisiana still eat things like snapping turtle, but you know, Asian markets they still eat snakes and turtles, and we've mostly well, gotten majority away majority of that. the world is yeah, not, I guess. Or yeah. not eating it. But then it's all I don't know. It also is like why do we think it's weird to eat that but not eat the foods, you know, turkey? Well, what sucks that. is that it takes them so long to get the sexual maturity. True. So to you replace can them very well. Yeah. You know, decimate whole populations. But like squirrels and stuff. I'd never eat a squirrel, but they freaking populate like crazy. But yeah, they don't taste like chicken, really. <laughs> it's a little bit tougher than chicken. Yeah, it is. <laughs> this is coming from two people who have apparently tried squirrels. So you oh, got to try it. I've eaten squirrel. Well. I, don't, I don't like tough meat. And like quail, or no, I like quail. What else? There's other, oh, pigeon. I'm sure someone's uncle, Billy Bob, can, well, they'll tell you that he can cook good squirrel or something, and his is tender. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe someone's out there had a chicken turtle. (laughs) I don't know, you monster. Who knows? But that's just so interesting that in that moment that you were in that pond, you experienced so many different things. And it's like also like to you, you acknowledge that thing that average person's like wouldn't even catch nope. those different things, much less know what a chicken turtle is <laughs> or I all t- these different things. I tend to think of it as a different type of consciousness. Like I'm just in tune with that world, you know, but then it comes to birds and there could be a whole different world there that I just don't know much about. <laughs> plants. I don't know. I don't know a lot about plants. But it seems like you need to you need to have at least a pretty good base of knowledge for for your job. Yep, a na- wide a nature, wide range, like everything, right? Yeah. Not just yeah. like you know. There's some people who are like only like this, you know, little species of bug they work on for 20 years of their life, you know. Yeah. But you seem to have such a wide range and you do so many various things. I do. Yeah, it's been good. I, I kind of pigeonholed myself into a lot of herp work, but my job with Natural Heritage Program. I work with rare plants sometimes. Um, uh, We do a lot of what's called natural community inventory, and that's going out and identifying different forest types and stuff. That's been fun. That's where I've really learned the most about, like, what makes up longleaf because I've been able to identify different types of savanna habitats and stuff like that. That's kind of neat. I want to have so many so many forests and trees and stuff. She's trying to sell me. I'm moving to North Carolina. You're (laughs) It just is funny that it so happened. We had someone on the podcast from North Carolina. I can't talk. North Carolina right after I started trying to sell Joe on moving there. That's funny. It's a great place. But yeah. we did move from Texas to Pennsylvania last year. So let's yes. calm our jets here. Calm our jets. Right. I don't know. We'll be there or no. I'll be there soon. Yeah. I'll be there in November. But do you, do you guys do any through your job? Do you do like community education as well? Not really. Good for um, you. You don't mess around with little kids and stuff. No. <laughs> so I've occasionally helped with like uh, Weymouth Woods State Park in, in, in the Sandhills has an event, Party for the Pine. And so I've helped with that. Where I've had a, I had took a gopher frog, a captive gopher frog, and we had like skins and pelts. It was you know, a lot of different things going on. And that was neat. Um. But I, I've, I physically can't do a lot of that. <laughs> I just, I'm not a big kid person, so I don't know. But I do do a lot of yeah. outreach in terms of in the professional community and even non-professionals. So I go out and give talks to herb societies. I give talks to 
regional groups. There's a Sandhills, Friends for the Sandhills group. I gave a talk to them. So I do that kind of thing. And I think that's really where people learn the most. You know, when you talk to little kids, it's great to get people interested in nature. But super technical talks are just going to bore them. It's better to walk into a room with a snake and describe how cool boa, a boa is to them to get them going. For adults, I think it can be immediately more impactful to get them interested. Oh, you know, this place that's in your backyard is actually really important, like globally important. You should That's an honor to live, you know, that to be in your backyard. And then it gets them, you know, it is. And then they talk to their friends. So, But I'm also a pessimist inside, and I tend to think of – how much is that really going to change anything? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but your whole work is tracking change. But your whole work is tracking change in the wrong direction. I think that's <laughs> yeah, it is. Very rarely do I go, I wonder how this species is doing. I go out and I find it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> True. Kind of feeds but, into the pessimistic view. Like, oh, there's even less. Oh, its, its range a, is even smaller. <laughs> it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy for me. Like, Typically, people are going to be like, we wonder how the species is doing, not because it's everywhere. Typically, there's no one's seeing it. So, but yeah. True. We but, don't worry about something in abundance, typically. Yeah. Typically. Until it's too late. <laughs> and then, yeah, then we're worrying about it. But I mean, priorities, right? You should worry about the things that are struggling first. Unfortunately, they probably struggle till they don't exist. And then... <laughs> do they have do you do you have any you know issues as far as you know we see snake fungal disease and stuff like that or chytrid and in frogs and stuff like do you have any viruses or fungal infections anything going on in your natural uh populations there in north carolina yes it's an interesting topic um there's been a few snakes in north carolina confirmed with snake fungal disease um we actually, in 2016, there was a group of us got a grant, um, and the, the person that applied for the grant, the principal investigators with the Museum of Natural Sciences, but he gave us all these, all these people all over the state that do field activities kits to sample for diseases. So we sampled for um, uh, BD, the amphibian chytrid disease. We sampled for B-sal, which is the salamander-specific chytrid disease. We sampled for snake fungal disease. Um, you guys there? Yeah. yeah. And um, we sampled for rhinovirus, which for people who work with frogs and turtles, that's kind of a big one in that arena. And so we did sampling for that um, throughout 2016. And the results of that are going to be published, I think, shortly in Herp Review. Um, and I can't remember the results off the top of my head, but we did get rhinovirus, or excuse me, we did get snake fungal disease disease and several it wasn't a high it wasn't a lot of it but we did get it so is that i mean do you know how widespread it is at this point if it's like a major player as far as populations of snakes ah it's been a while since i looked at that paper (laughs) i can't as far as being widespread it's kind of random more than it's widespread um so i don't know uh, but we typically don't see symptoms of it very often. Um, now, where I've done the most work, the soils are really dry, which helps kind of snakes don't tend to present signs of any kind of scale rot or any of that stuff when, when the soil is really dry. It's really when they're in wet conditions, like we see it on the coast quite a bit. Um, but it's hard to know what exactly is snake fungal disease from what is just a normal 
blister that is gone with a shed or two. Um, and that's pretty common in, in wild snakes when they're coming out of brumation or hibernation. Um, but we've we've had some test positive that didn't really have any noticeable signs that we think of. Um, but we don't tend to get what people in the Midwest have gotten with Massasaugas, where they get really disfigured and they look like crap, and you can tell they're probably not eating because of it. We we haven't seen I haven't seen that. And that was something I heard was more of a like it's almost like the snake fungal disease messes up with the snake's ability to know when to brumate and when not to brumate. Oh, so yeah. there was a bunch of, you know, snakes coming out of brumation in the winter and dying. I didn't know if that, how true that yeah. is, or that might not be as big of a problem in North Carolina. I don't know. It could be. Um, I don't know a whole lot about snake fungal disease, to be honest. It's kind of a mystery box for me, but um, it could. In North Carolina, there's a lot of species that reach that northern extent of the range, and I'm thinking of eastern diamondbacks, and um, it could really affect those because they, they absolutely require going underground. They're at their thermal limit in North Carolina. And I don't keep any frogs or uh, amphibians or turtles or anything like that, so what exactly is, what do you call it, uh, rhinovirus? Rhinovirus, yeah. So... I don't know the origins of it. I don't know a lot about the disease. I'm not a disease person. I just sample for, for stuff and I've looked at it a little bit. Um, but it is, I want to say it's more prevalent in frogs, but it is also in turtles. And it has, and it can go, I think, from frog to turtle. And what we've seen in the sampling is it's just kind of out there. We've seen lizards with it on them that obviously don't present signs because it doesn't really do anything to lizards, but they have them on it. Um, so it's out there, but I don't think in North Carolina it's leading to any declines that we're seeing. Gotcha. So yeah. I know we, we talked a lot about North Carolina throughout this whole thing, but, uh, let's talk a little bit of some international herping. So what was your, what was your first time out of the country going herping? So first time out of the country herping was actually in Namibia. Um, Whoa, that seems like a difficult first one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I went, it was when I was an undergrad, and I went as a study abroad trip for three weeks over to Namibia. And um, it was under my advisor, Dr. Heatwall. And it was in the winter there, so it wasn't like crazy herping. And it was more like learning about desert ecology. But we did look for herps. Um, I didn't have any crazy findings. I had, um, I somebody shot a cobra like almost in front of me. <laughs> oh. Almost got to see a live cobra that trip. So that kind of stuff. Uh, but my what I think of as my first like real time going out where everything was about herping was Ecuador. And that was 2008. So a little over 10 years ago. Um yeah. So what were the circumstances that got you there? Was that just a you literally went there kind of for a vacation pretty much so it was kind of a vacation pseudo internship kind of thing so the year before i went out west the same time a friend of mine ross maynard went to ecuador and he went down i can't remember the group's name at the time but it is now what's called the biodiversity group 
And he just, he got back. He's like, you have to come next year. I'm going back. It's amazing. It's the herps are crazy. You got to go. So I was like, all right. So the next year came around and you know, when you're at that age, I was 25, I had time was on my, my side. I had time. I didn't make a lot of money. So it was probably cheaper for me to just leave the country than, than sit around and pay rent or whatever. So, um, so I think I, I guess I didn't move out of my apartment then, but, um, so yeah, we spent seven weeks in Ecuador. So it was fantastic. It was amazing. Wow. That's great. And I see most of, or a lot of the pictures that you have here are different. (laughs) So I also recently went back to Ecuador for a second time this February. And a lot of those images are from that trip. So were you, um, did you find a lot of amphibians? Was that kind of your main focus on yeah. that trip? I mean, so this past trip this year was 100% vacation. I just needed to get out, not be at my job, not be at the house, doing something, finding something neat. And so we got hooked up um, with the Himakwake Reserve out on coastal Ecuador. Um, and the director of that reserve is also um, with the biodiversity group. And my friend Ross is now, 10 years later, is a scientific director of the biodiversity group. So me and him and then my friend Kevin Messenger, who does work in China, he's a assistant professor in China, the Neijing Forest, the University of Forestry. We all went out as a vacation and spent two weeks in Ecuador. And we spent most of that time on the coast, but then we went up to Mendo, which is kind of in the Andes proper. So, yeah, it was fun. Cool. Next question is, what the hell am I looking at right here? Salamanders. <laughs> this what? is one of my favorite salamanders ever. It's got the coolest name. It's called uh, uh, Bolitoglossa is the genus. Chica is the scientific name. Say that again. Bolitoglossa chica. <laughs> it's only known from five places, and this is one of them. Um, and I found it in 2008. We found we found one at like the second only known location at that time. And then all these years later, we were able to find it again, which is pretty cool. I was really happy with that. Um, I'm not wild about my photos, but... Is this in situ? Like, would it be on no. a leaf like that? Okay. So typically, yes, they are on leaves like that. Um, but we found this one on the ground. It's the only Blitiglossa I've ever seen on the ground. So we found it on the ground, and then I took shots, and we have this, like, pause to cause studio, but back, because we're doing night hikes all night, so we typically, things we really want to invest time in photographing, we take back, photograph at the lodge, and then we take back the next night. So that was when I was releasing it. I released it on that fern right next to where it was found. It looks like. <laughs> it what looks are you like gonna say? It's <laughs> not like fully formed, or it looks like it stepped in. Um, Just started melting. Yeah, oh, like yeah. it's. It looks halfway melted, and then my third observation of it, like it stepped in. Um, like the stuff that like molds around, like. Ah, oh, shoot! What is them like, like it? Slime like it's. It came out, and then it just like stuck to it. Like a cast was formed of the dripping of whatever i don't know this looks <laughs> like it yeah, feet. they got like really webbed feet um yeah. yeah and and i tend to think of like the 
the coloration is wood grain. They look like a wood grain. Yes. It's a wild thing. Are um, all of their eyes like that? Yeah, I think so. That's a pretty light individual. They can be darker than that. Of course, they also change color a little bit. Like they just darken up sometimes. But um, I'm gonna have to go look at a video after because I'm yeah. like, how does it? I don't envision. I can't envision how its mouth opens. It has like a fish mouth. Like you would see that on a like, fish. It's like blubbery in the feet too. <laughs> like it literally looks like the feet are like wet or like they have like plasticine on them. <laughs> like yeah, it's neat. Oh, are these things sense. like it looks like it would be not something that you would find on a branch or on a leaf or anything it looks like something that would not move very efficiently like are they faster than they look no <laughs> no, <laughs> no <it's not> <laughs> i have to take a picture of this thing yeah they're not like uh what we think of like with desmogs the, the salamanders you typically find in creeks where they just like you know, zip out of your hand. No, they're not like that. <laughs> that Low is energy. a crazy, crazy animal. Say the name again. Blah, blah. <laughs> Blitiglossa. Blitiglossa chica. It's a very diverse uh, genus. There's a lot of species. Some of them range, I think, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there's one that's like eight inches long or something. They're, they range a lot. But they're, <laughs> so but they're very diverse in like Guatemala and that area in, in the core of central america they're very diverse in south america you only get a few species that's amazing and here we have well, this is your favorite thing the fossorial snakes that look like worms type of thing like or what am i what am i looking at right here a worm so that's a sicilian <laughs> worm so is it a snake no it's a sicilian I don't know what that is. <laughs> so you in in amphibia in amphibians you have frogs, salamanders, and Sicilians, and they're their own thing. Most a lot of people don't really know them because they only occur in the tropics. So in Central and South America, and then you get them in Asian, and I think they might get into a little bit of Africa, but they're mainly Asian. So yeah. What is their biological difference from a worm? <laughs> so they're a vertebrate. Worms are not vertebrates, um, gotcha. but yeah, they're just, it's, they're really interesting. There's not a lot of information on them. No one really knows the core biology of Sicilians. There recently, I think was some work looking at reproduction in Sicilians. Um, I don't know, even know a lot about them. Um, hey, what are you trying to zoom in on? I'm trying to see if I can find any eyes on this oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Which I one's the head? Oh, look at Arnie. like three stupid yeah. questions. I wasn't going to ask where the face was. <laughs> you know, the, 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 what you're supposed to do for wildlife photography is always focus on the eyes. But here's a species where that's almost virtually impossible. Yeah. You, you did get the right side, though. That's, that's its head. <laughs> it looks, it looks I mean, more like a fingernail. A tail. Yeah. That's, a that's the very top of it. Like it's the tail. Wait, go back to it, babe. <laughs> I just so, feel like I am learning so many new animals today. I don't I feel like we photograph stuff on white, but for this guy, we just couldn't. In habitat, they're just gone. They're just so fast moving. So that's the only photo I really have. I got a couple. How long read. is it? Oh, sorry. Um, man, I can't remember. It's this one was pretty long. But two are we talking? Half, oh, really? Like three, two and a half feet? Maybe three feet. 
Whoa. Hey, okay. Perspective is very interesting. I thought that was like a little worm. Okay. Do I just read like the dumbed down versions of books? When I've read books about the different, like, you know, the different types of amphibians and Sicilian has never come up. Yeah, they're people yep. who live on an island in Italy. <laughs> oh, oh <I> <laughs> near like, Italy. Have you ever heard of a Sicilian? <laughs> That's the Italian version. <laughs> well, the animal version. No. Why don't I hear about these? Well, We're bad hurt people. They're not incredibly diverse. So in, in, in the U.S., we don't really talk about them. They're not here. And they're not very diverse, and they're only found in a few countries. And we don't care about things that aren't here most of the time. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> not all the time, but it's so interesting. I don't even think you can own them. Like no one keeps Sicilians. So there's so, no hobby in that. Um, Someone in the chat said, click, click it, babe. Uh, aquatic Sicilians used to be big in the past. Okay. There you go. Huh. Someone, people used. There's probably a good reason why they're not big. Yeah, in the what's the why? <laughs> How do I keep? How do I keep that creature alive? Like, probably hard to it? breed too. I And it seems like uh, you found a couple species. Are these glass frogs? Yeah. So yep. is that one you took back to your little setup? Yeah, we had, um, we, Ross takes a lot of images on white because he uses them for various education and talks and publications. And so since we were in the lab, you know, lab, really the lodge, just taking photos, I, I tried to take a photo of each frog, not each frog, each species in the white box as well. I'd never really done it. I not, I haven't edited any of those so that you might see like dirt in the background. I just haven't had time to edit. So that's a really cool glass frog. The eye, it looks like... And he is bumpy. That looks like Kermit. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> yeah. The eye makes it look a little bit more like Kermit. It's just the, the like, I don't know what... It looks like veins in the eye. I don't know what those are, but it's so... In, like, the yeah. shattered eye look is very interesting to me. So that one um, is critically endangered. Okay. And we may have found a new location for it. Oh. We're not totally sure, but we may have. So does finding new locations, you know, would that lead to it not be considered critically endangered anymore? Or are there many factors you have to check off? How much is understudied and it would have to be fully explored, you just can't find it. There is that. In in a lot of places it's just understudied. You know, there was a new frog described from this town Mindo which is, is like a bird central location for birders to go in Ecuador in like the last few years. So mm. it's very easy. Places go underlooked. Herps go underlooked in a lot of places. Um, so yeah, they could be found in more locations. This specific frog is just not known for many. And so maybe half of it's just not looking for it in the right places or there's only a few places it has. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about it. I just know we found it one night and we were all very excited. We had an idea that we might see it, um, but. And are, is Ecuador typically easily traveled um, or yeah, what was I traveling safe. there? It's, it's safe for the most part. Right now is not a great time to go because they're having some political issues. Um, but most of the time, I've, 
I've only ever had a couple problems, and they're very small problems. Nothing like going into Mexico. <laughs> Nothing yeah. like going into places like that. That are truly wild, wild west. Um, Wait, so explain a little bit about Mexico. Well, Mexico is narco land. <laughs> yeah, I can get picked Most up of by Mexico the wrong people. <laughs> yeah. So where was your first your first herb trip to Mexico? Where'd you go? I went to Sonora, which is uh, so I flew into Tucson. It's in Arizona, and then we just drove south into Sonora, and we just stayed in Sonora. Um, so Sonora is pretty safe. It's not that crazy. It's it really gets crazier when you go further south. But um, but yeah, oh, Mexico is awesome. Worm. We have another Sicilian friend here. Let's see. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Different species, much smaller, much thicker. That one was on my first trip to Ecuador. You can probably tell because the picture quality is terrible. Um, uh, still way better still than good. any <laughs> picture I would get, that's for sure. Um, you can kind of see its eyes in that one, I feel like, maybe. Um, that one was uh, funny. We were, um, we were walking around this reserve, and we were in the Amazon on that trip, so the eastern side of the Andes. and um, we're with this shorter girl and she just wanted to go out for a night hike. So we, she came along and me and Ross are kind of tall and she goes, oh, I see a giant millipede and we can't even see it. Cause it's like her point of view is so low that <laughs> we just see trees and branches and I get a look at it and it's a, it's a Sicilian. It's this thing coming out of the ground. I, it was the first one I ever found. I was floored and I just grab it. You know, I had to bag it, take photos of later. Um, typically I don't like to bag things to take photos of later, but when you're doing night hikes and you're two in the morning, it, you just kind of have to do it sometimes. Um, so what do you care? Are you just like throwing them in a backpack? Like after you bag them? What do you so, care? and these we put in some sort of Ziploc bag, some sort of plastic bag because they, they need that moisture. So we take a little bit of leaf litter, mm -hmm. Ziploc bag. We tend to only think, hold things overnight. Um, that could get heavy I, if you find a lot of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and then then I kept walking down the path, and I touched my eye, and it just caught on fire. <laughs> Whatever was on their skin just irritated the heck out of my eye, and so I'm Whoa. dumping all my drinking water on my face. <laughs> Wait, so is that what? anything that's like observed? Or yeah, what is that? I don't know what it is. I know what it felt like though. <laughs> Some Sicilian. You think it's like? Is that like a defense mechanism? Do you think that happens to like other animals? Other animals. I don't know. I, I don't know. To eat it. They just have a very. I, I don't know. They might need that layer mm -hmm. as just overall protection, moisture. But I don't know if it's something where it just doesn't taste good. Um, definitely irritated my eyes, though. That's so interesting. Wow. That's a crazy creature. I can't imagine there are too many people studying Sicilians out there to tell us more about it. No. Is that not. an ATV? No, no, I believe this is some type of snail eater. The eyes are so crazy. <laughs> um, close. It's a. It mainly eats uh, lizards and gnolls, but it's a blunt-headed tree snake. It's one of them. It's a. I'm in Toadies lentiferous. It's the Amazon-specific blunt-headed tree snake. Yeah, it was close. I got the word so Amazon. I got the word <laughs> Amazon in there. <laughs> So, if people, for people who can't see, who are listening to the audio people version, people just can't this listen is... to the audio version of this episode. You have to watch the video. Of, there's just too yeah. many good pictures. And this snake's eyes are pretty much the size of its head. 
it pretty much occupies the whole head. <laughs> yeah. And its, it's neck very, is super yeah. thick. I feel like you, it could be snapped at the neck very easily. I don't know. They're very arboreal. Most of them we found were about eye height. Looking down on everyone with its big, huge eyes. <laughs> that, one that one was actually above my head. I kind of, I actually dipped under the branch to go kind of under the branch, and Ross is behind me. He goes, dude, <laughs> there's a snake right oh, above you. <laughs> That's so wild. And I mean, are you finding are those very common or not so much? Lentiferous, yeah, relatively. Um, they're blunt-headed's. There's a more common species that is just very common. People find them southern Mexico, and they're in the Amazon. They're just kind of very, very, very common. Lentiferous is uh, in our seven, in our really, we only spent about three and a half weeks in the Amazon. We found three, I want to say, where we found like, you know, a dozen or so of the other more common species. So, And are they, are they all, do they all have the same like color patterns or varying? Yeah, they all look the same. The other species is darker and looks a lot different. But yeah. yeah, and something that I definitely didn't know went up that far north. You have here a rainbow boa. Yeah. yeah I don't think Ecuador. they'd be in Mexico. No, they're, that's in Ecuador. Sorry if that's confusing. Oh, oh. no wonder why. <laughs> yeah. That makes much more sense. Did I put that in Sonora? Oh, my bad. <laughs> it's okay. Well, I know there's something. <laughs> we know that one. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of an interesting one. So, you know, blacktail rattlesnake. But in this area, individuals can look like the Mexican blacktail, the normal northern blacktail, or even what's called basilicus, which is like the western coast rattlesnake. They're all kind of the same thing. But um, So this one's kind of nice because it has diamonds. I don't tend to see real good diamonds on Blacktails. I don't know. I thought it was an awesome animal. Our friend um, Ryan asked if you guys found any velvet worms on any of these trips. Velvet worms. You know, I'm ignorant. I don't really know. Are you talking about velvet worms in the sense of the uh, the flatworm that has like um, like really distinct antenna? Not sure exactly what a velvet worm is, but I kind of can picture it. Well, Wikipedia tells us it's Anya Chafora. An mm. Ooh, it's so weird looking. Ooh, no, I've never seen one of those. Um, let me see. Oh man, I was sharing. You have to the switch the tab. One. Yeah. But that was kind of what I was looking at or thinking of. Do you know what you're doing, babe? Apparently not. Sorry, I have to do this over <laughs> again. We suck at this. We're all new. Come tab. Thank you. Bell onion. Uh, right, now you can see this monster. How do you me. pronounce that? Onia tripophora. I feel like it'd be some creature in a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen one. Very interesting. What is there? Do you know what their range or go back to Wikipedia? Oh, no. We're going to go through all this now? Well, I just want to see. Wait, no, it's right up there. There you go. That's okay. a good part. So right where everyone's been, but I've never heard anyone talk about finding them. I don't know. People probably aren't looking for these crazy creatures. I wonder if they, I feel like they would also have 
something weird that would hurt. Okay, another weird word I can't pronounce. Um, did you find any? Wait, let me try to pronounce it. Amphisbenet. Oh, I give up. Yeah, no, we didn't. We didn't find any in in Mexico or Ecuador. I spent. How do you pronounce it? Oh, I don't want to butcher it either. (laughs) (laughs) Amphisbenians. Amphisbean. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I say it. They're saying it with the ID, meaning the whole group, but yeah, Amphisbenians. Okay. And is that something that's common to Mexico? Um, it's probably southern Mexico, but it's um I don't know how quite to describe it. It's lizardy. <laughs> kind of the same thing, like Sicilian, but within Squamata. I think gotcha. it's within Squamata. Anyway, um so did you have like a local guide or anything with you when you were in Mexico? When I was in Sonora, no. Funny story, I knew of a herper that was going to be in the, one of the regions we were going to. And so I contacted him. I was like, hey, if we run in together, and he's like, it's, it's Alamos. You're going to stay at the same place. We'll see each other. So I was like, okay. Well, I get down there, and he didn't tell me he was with a group of 16 herpers. Wow. Whoa. So just me and my friend Ross just going down for a couple weeks in Mexico. And first place we stay. There's 16 people looking for herbs. Wow. So is that a common hotspot for people looking? I guess Not if there's 16 hot. going. <laughs> now, they had all kind of gone together. So it wasn't like 16 people on their own little trips. It was one big group of people. So, um, yeah, probably not commonplace to run into other herpers, but not out of the, you know, not super rare either, I guess. Um, one of the guys. That's that a was, big group. Yes, it was. It was too big almost. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I feel like I almost wouldn't want that many people. <laughs> yeah. Me and Ross, we kind of stuck to ourselves that trip. Um, but yeah. And then we went up to the mountains in Sonora and we went, you guys just interviewed a guy, um, JG or GJ recently from the Netherlands, I think. Yes. 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 Yeah. He was on that trip. So I ran into him, met him. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. He's really funny. funny. That's very weird and small world. (laughs) Now, he's had some interesting Mexico experiences. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> he has. Yep. So we you found... didn't encounter anything weird? No, not weird. Um, um, but me me and him, so him, Ross, and a couple other herpers split from that big group, and we went to the mountains, and we found three specimens of a very rare snake called Tropsidodipus is the genus. Um, can't remember the common name, but um, and it's only been we found the fifth, sixth, and seventh known specimen ever. Whoa! Yeah, so it was really crazy. We got a little publication that came out in her review off of that. Joe um, tried to type in that Latin name, and it came up with some weird foreign cartoon. Um, <laughs> we're trying to find. He tried typing triple dipus to bring Sorry, up the common I can't name. Pronounce it. I butcher it all the time. Um, trophied. Here it is. That's it. Oh, it didn't work for me either. Is it a dwarf boa? Tropsidodipsis? Uh, no, it's a bluebirdy thing. Oh, dang it. I thought I found it. I typed in how I thought you spelled it, and then Mexico, and the dwarf boa is what came up. 
But I guess it's not that. One of the but, cooler boas I've seen is the um ah, I just lost the name. Ryza said that. Where'd oh. you find it? Tracky boa. Oh, that was um, right there. Those are really neat. Mm. Whoa, they're so bumpy. Tracky boas? Or I don't know if that, that's the right picture. Nope. That's oh yeah, a northern eyelash boa. Yep. They're so bumpy. It's almost like some of the Candoya, like uh, like a Paulson eye or something. But the face is totally different. The eyelashes and the, they have like these ridges on the nose and I stuff. Know, I feel like it's like a monitor, for, you know, like the not the face of a snake. Yeah, it doesn't look like the face of a snake. It's very weird. Hangs out in little creeks and streams, little rocky creeks and streams. It's definitely unique. Whoa. So how did you, or how did you first, I lost the question I was going to ask, but. Um, was it, is it a very different, I mean, this is a dumb question. Let's say is it a very different experience herping in the mountains versus on the flatland. And it obviously is, but like, what do you, I don't know how to ask that question either. We're both terrible. I feel like out. being more remote wouldn't help you any. It would make me a lot more nervous, at least. Uh, going into the mountains by ourselves and yeah it definitely has that in mexico it's a little nerve-wracking because there's narco activities and stuff like that going on and there's people that just i don't know you just have to be on your toes you know be aware we were very fortunate when mountains in sonora that we we stayed with um a local catholic monastery so that was nice a safe space. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, tracky bows are amazing. And again, they're they're in the Chaco region of Ecuador and Colombia. Oh, bring it back. A very distinct back. spot on the globe. Yeah, this is a super unique snake. And it looks like the eyes are different colors, right? That first one, the eye was red. Or I don't know if that's just the way the sun is hitting it. Um, so very interesting. So let's talk about um, Baja California, <laughs> sir. Baja California, sir, is awesome. That, so that, how... that trip was pure vacation. It was me and my girlfriend. It was that kind of a vacation. You know, it wasn't like dedicated herping. We were going to do some leisure activities. We we're going to go snorkeling, do a couple activities, that kind of stuff. But of course, herping has to be a part of it. Of course. Of course. <laughs> But you found probably, I mean, at least that North American herpers would want to see, especially people who are into colubrids. I mean, you saw the Cape Gopher. Yep. Last night of the trip, too. Melissa's new favorite snake. <laughs> pull it up. Pull it up. So is that a commonly found snake? It's relatively is it... common. Okay. I shouldn't say common. I don't really know. I... Yeah, I'll say relatively common. I guess if you can go there for a for a week and snorkel and do all that stuff and still find one, I mean, maybe it's you either got very lucky or it's yeah. a little bit common. Just well, we definitely had rough circumstances. We definitely um, it was slow herping. We had nights where we didn't find anything, and that's always frustrating. 
But the last night, we were going to fly out that morning. The last night we found that and um, a rosy boa, a live rosy boa, finally. So You're probably going to make fun of me for this because it's a stretch. But I think the reason why I like these is the the um, the coloring going from that red to that like brown reminds me of the Swiss line blackheads that I like a lot. And I know you're going to make fun of me. They're, that looks nice. they're nothing no, like, I know. No, they're nothing like a blackhead. But, but do you see what I'm saying? The red blending into the brown. Right. Which happens with a lot of like pituophis. It just doesn't, but they don't they usually don't have like red that. in them. Yeah, the red because you know I yeah. like red in it, and that's why I like the Swiss line black blackhead so much because that red is so strong, and I love this strong red. And then the head is just awesome. There has to be, where can I find these? Someone find them for me. Yeah, you can find this. Is actually, to be honest, one of the best looking individuals I've seen. And having seen you know lime bred animals in captivity, you would think we have better looking individuals. But this one's pretty top notch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was, I was excited. I didn't think it would look that good when I found it. And then, I mean, rosy boas, have you found rosy boas in California before or have you found nope. them in other locations? Nope, never herped California. I mainly stick to New Mexico, Arizona when I go out there. Um, so, yeah, I found a dead one and then immediately I found a, a live one. Those are the only two I've ever seen. Wow. So, yeah. And really awesome, like cream peachy color with very yeah. black lines. I like those better than the 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 more commonly photographed ones in California. Which I think people would usually. I mean, they can be super colorful in California. They can. But this, <laughs> they can. But these and are like be, super contrasty. I might be partial because I found that. <laughs> right, you like what you found. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I guess. The one thing that I love that is the the Baja rat snake. So were oh, yeah, you looking for that. those or Yeah, that was my on my wish list. I did not get that. That was very unfortunate. I went up and down. And how long were you there? I was there for two weeks. Okay. And we spent the most time in the area where um a number of them are found. So the Laredo area, we spent like eight days there. That is gorgeous. Yeah. That's Cabo Plumo. That's where we went snorkeling. And that How, like, is, inhabited is it? Uh, not very inhabited. That right there is actually um, Santa Catalina, the island, out in the uh, Gulf of, of uh, Baja, California. And so that's where the endemic, the endemic um, Crotalus Catalina insis is from. The rattleless rattlesnake. Oh, so did you end up finding one of those? Yeah, that's not it. That has, <laughs> and that has very much has a rattle. <laughs> yeah, that's Mitchell. Yep, there you go. Okay, so I'm a noob and I know nothing about the rattleless rattlesnake. Give a basic kindergarten level explanation. So they've evolved to not have a rattle. Is it just because so many people are like, what? What is the adaptation um, You see a lot of interesting evolutionary things occur on islands. There's a whole study on biogeography, island biogeography, and it's applied to other things like high elevation sky or island or mountains that are kind of like islands in the sky. But 
But typically, evolution does some interesting things on islands because, you know, you only have a fixed amount of individuals. There's not much migration of genes. And so in this population, they just evolved to not have a rattle. And I'm guessing what happened is, you know, it just worked. There's no need to have a rattle. There's no, um, I'm not sure what really brought about the rattle, maybe big hoofed animals or predators, what have you, but there's no need for it. And they don't have it. Maybe there is even a deleterious effect if you have a rattle on that island. Maybe you will get more likely to get eaten by something. I don't know. Just spitballing, but. I know what deleterious means now because of <laughs> Travis Weinman and it makes me excited. <laughs> That's good. So do they, are there other snakes on that island? Is there mm-hmm. different, uh, are there any that are particular to that? To that area or different than say like a mainland animal or something yeah the um desert iguanas are their own subspecies there um i want to say the night snake is its own species it's there um and then there's a couple things that are their own there and then of course there's plants like there's a a barrel cactus that's the santa catalina barrel cactus to occur outside of that island um but yeah, and, it, and it's one of the more remote islands, so you can start to understand why there's so much unique species on the island, because it's, you know, I don't know how many miles, but it's the, one of the further islands to get to. And that's an, that's an island that you need to have particular permits to get on, correct? Yeah, so it used to be fairly easy to just go to the docks, hire a guy to take you out there and pick you up the next morning. You could camp out. Um you can't camp on the island anymore without permits. Um, and to go to the island, um, you have to go through a process now with the government. And even in the U.S., governments tend to be slow to do stuff like that, especially when they just made up their mind that that's a new law. And so we met with – we had a really good company that we were trying to work through to get to the island. And um, it was like, I'll reach out to them. I'll see what they say. Um, and they wanted to have a meeting with me. They wanted to send a government representative with me to make sure I didn't touch any snakes, <laughs> which is just freaking ridiculous. I mean, I, I kind of get it. If you, you don't want people poaching these things either, I'm sure they're, I don't know how much they go for on the, on the market, but I'm sure they're not cheap animals. There's someone out there looking for them, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. They're unique enough. And, um, so you don't want people just poaching them. You don't want, you know, somebody going out and doing whatever. Um, it's isolated enough. And, um, so yeah, they wanted somebody to walk with me, which just made photography hard, would have made interacting hard. You don't know if they'd be loosey goosey or, you know, stiff rule, you know, you gotta be here. You can only be here an hour and a half. So we, 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 I said, you know what? I was about to cancel the whole thing. And I said, okay, we'll have a meeting with them and see how it goes. They didn't show up to the meeting. <laughs> so the tour company was like, just go, just go out there. And so we spent three hours on the island, which is not a very long amount of time. And by the end, when we got picked up, you about couldn't stand the island. It was so hot. There's no shade. Like the rocks you're like huddling under, just the sun rises and there's no shade. Um, But we got three snakes in those three hours and all three of them, you know, were within the first hour. So that was That sounds like good luck. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Great. I, I I was really hoping we'd get just one would have been fantastic. And but is that made, something to where there's not many people there? Is that what helps you? Out? Are there a lot of snakes there or did you get I straight think, up lucky? 
I think they're, they're, the populations are pretty healthy there. Um, so I think I also got luck. I lucked out because um, sometimes you can go somewhere where something's very abundant and still just not get it. Either that day is just not that right day or whatever. Um, and whenever I find something I'm actually looking for, I just consider it lucky, even if it was like meant to be or, you know, perfect ideal temperature or weather. It's just, it's lucky. You go looking for something, you find it. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, How do you really go about like planning out a trip like that or somewhere that you've never been? So Santa Catalina, I knew a couple of that, people that had been there. Um, so I contacted them. Um, unfortunately, most of that info was dated. You know, even just a couple of years, things change. Um, but I reached out to a guy that has research contacts down there on Santa Catalina. And he had just been out there like the year before. So he put me in touch with this tour guide. And he says, they're really, they're good. The people, you know, the easy guys to get, they're fine. But this guy actually is like legit business, you know, insured, all that stuff. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And and then when push came to shove about all the regulations, it really helped to have somebody that was above board and somebody that knew my interest too, because he knew this this other guy and he knew, you know, that guy wouldn't be recommending me if I was just an idiot, you know. So some of it's networking and some of it's also just really researching where you're going to go, like in advance. And it doesn't have to be like a year in advance, but, you know, just understanding it and as far as the snakes um that spot was just kind of luck because the only place he could really drop me off was a good spot to go look for him at that, that at that day um but yeah yeah all international trips are a lot of planning baja is easy because it's a lot of people go there regularly there's a pretty good international airport in los cabos i mean it's a famous beach resort area um, and it's safe. You know, we road cruised until two in the morning a couple times and just no one's on the road. It's safe. You know, a lot of Mexico, you just can't, you're not, you don't want to be doing that. Um, but yeah. Was the cost to get to the island any, anything crazy? No, it wasn't crazy. It was definitely like right on the edge of where I was like, man, I should be spending all this money for one snake. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. It, it was the best overall day of the trip. Like going to the, we left before sun. So we got at sunrise. It was a very long day. But on the way back, we saw pilot whales. We saw a feeding colony of, of dolphins. It was probably like 50 to more or more dolphins in this big feeding pod. So it was just like, oh, and my girlfriend's really into marine mammals. So it was just overall a pretty awesome day. And our guide was really cool. He brought lunch for us. And it wasn't that expensive. I'm I'm a cheap person. So when when I say something's expensive, it's for a lot of people it's not that that big of a deal. But yeah. It wasn't in like the thousands of dollars or anything. Tell Joe it's expensive because clearly he's asking as a potential trip in the future, no. I feel. No, it's just something that's that's interesting because it's not it's obviously not far from, say, California, and it seems like it should be relatively easy to get to, but I feel like a lot of people don't go there, and I that thought that there were more barriers there than there seems to be. Yeah. I mean, overall, to go to Baja for two weeks, 
most people, it, it is kind of expensive. It was my most expensive thing I did all year, but that was my highlight of my year was to go there. So, you know, to get the flight, to get the rental car, to go to the town, to hire somebody to boat you out there, that, that all, if you just, if you went to Baja for that one snake, that's an expensive snake. But you go to Baja to eat it, you know, to eat good food, to, you know, get fish tacos, to snorkel, to find all the other snakes, you know? So then it doesn't, it's not that bad. <laughs> but it's not, you know, it's way more expensive than going to like Ecuador. You can go to Ecuador on a budget. Really? Because I mean, yeah, I feel like we talk to so many people, they usually say Costa Rica. Yeah. Or, yeah. We, can, we can find flights for like 250 bucks to Costa Rica. Yeah, that's cheap. And yeah. it's like, yeah, that seems like such an easy trip. But uh, someplace maybe even a little bit closer, like like Baja seems to be just a little bit more difficult. But Yeah, what's high on my list is Cuba. Cuba's been high on my list for a while. We had uh, Jeff Lem on not too long ago. He has a trip that they go down to Cuba. Nice. nice. So, yeah, it seems like an interesting place. Obviously, like, just opened up. And uh, yeah. he said even people can't go to Herp there anymore, but they have some type of bird watching mm-hmm. permit or something. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. But I saw kind of randomness. Is this a black and white mud snake? Is that what that is? Yeah, anatheristic mud snake. I've never Hashtag seen I've, morph. I've never seen a red and white. I mean, a black <laughs> and white one. Yeah, it's neat. It's I've seen two, and one was a gravid female that was just obliterated on the road, and then oh. that one. So, is this a locale thing? Do you think there's like a small no. locality of these? It seems to occur throughout the range. I know of records in North Carolina. Well, I found one in North Carolina, um, Florida. This was a Florida animal. I know mm-hmm. of them in South Carolina, um, and that's just the ones I know. So, I'm sure they're they're more out there. Um, but you know, I know of people that go to this this area all the time, and they've never seen one. So, I don't think it's a super common thing. Right. It's just, it seems like, I mean, you're taking a snake that's probably one of the most naturally beautiful snakes <laughs> and then taking out what's beautiful about it. But, yeah, yeah. but, and it works, but it's kind cool of. too. Yeah. And it seems like uh, something like an Annery mud snake, which is predominantly still black. It's just the belly's getting that creeped up white onto it and stuff. You know, it seems like it would survive just as well as in the same area there'd probably yeah. be an eastern kink snake that looks somewhat like it or a black kink snake that looks somewhat like it so yeah so i can imagine that they wouldn't have that much of uh it's not like it's a uh, bright yellow or red snake now and yeah they can't camouflage it's it also so. a mud snake they live in a lot of they, they live in the water all the time so i assume that the difference in red and white wouldn't be that big of a difference still you know, covered by brown <laughs> yeah but what a beautiful snake and what a unique uh individual that guy is yeah that thing was awesome that was that was the highlight of that trip have you found any other uh morphs in the wild i found an albino spotted salamander in west virginia so that was kind of cool i think that's the only albino herp i've seen um but not really 
I've seen some things that might be hypo, but not like crazy or anything. Um, I've looked for the anatheristic corns, but I've never found them. So is there a certain locale uh, known to produce anatheristic corns? Yeah, it's in Florida. The one I know about, there's an area in Florida that produces them. And what are we looking at right yeah, here? Yeah, that thing, it's dead, unfortunately. Can't tell, but... Oh, wow. <laughs> I could not tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, Eastern Garter, uh, near the Matamuskeet area in North Carolina. Okay, I don't know that area of North Carolina. Where is that? It's in the northeastern coast. So not like down, not Wilmington, but like north, north and east. Oh. Okay, yeah, I don't and, go there. Um, there's not a lot up there. It's mostly ag, but um, now I've I've seen a lot. I've seen some garter snakes up there. Most do not look anywhere near this thing. For people listening on the downloads, this thing is fire. red. Like it on, is on it's fire. it's the stick animals that you see in captivity. You know the the garter snakes that we have in captivity, but it is in the wild. Yeah. Was it was it dead on the road? Yeah, it was hit on a highway. Bastard. I wasn't even cruising. I was just <laughs> getting so point weird. A to point B. Wow, what's that's the, an amazing What's the total thing? range of garter snakes? <sighs> all over the place. Oh, is it just all over? Okay. Pretty much. Pretty much all over the country. I mean, you at least got your species wherever you are. You probably got one. Found one down Shurs the other day. It what? Just, it went down what the sewer. I see him. What am I saying? Yeah. I don't know why I said what. We see him in the city all the time here. In Which is weird. Yeah, I see. I see. Um, I see decays here, and I see garters here all the time. We live like in the city. Oh like, wow! Yeah, the people seem to stomp on them in the sidewalk, so that's how I always see them. Um, I saw a dead decays brown like on our block, and on our bl- block. Yeah, it must have came out of someone out of someone's garden. And someone's, of course, you know, someone smashed it because, you know, people. And then and then today I saw one that was cut up. It was smashed and then cut up like a little psycho did it. But it was a garter snake with a lot of like blue. I see. Yeah, I see garter snakes. Yeah, I've seen. I saw a big, big garter snake. Really? Yeah. Like a fat one come out of the. Then he went down in the sewer when he saw me. Probably a sheep. Why do you? Oh, because of the size. It's huge. Interesting. I've never seen one on fire like that. So what is your your favorite spot to herp in North Carolina? Or in general. I like well, to you go can't to say in general because there's going to be a big <laughs> difference between in general and in North Carolina. <laughs> I like to go to places that are kind of don't get attention. So like you go to places like the Sandhills. Um, on the right day, there's like eight cars on a dirt road. That's not fun. Like, the, it just gets overherped. So I like to go to places that there's not a lot of records, not really on the map. Um, and it's kind of like between Robinson County and, like, Pender County. Like, that's my favorite area. It's not like you're not going to find a lot of crazy stuff, but any rare thing you find is usually a pretty big deal. So... And what is your favorite place to herp in general? I'd have to, I'm going to have to say North Carolina, but well, 
If I had to select a place in the world that I want to go to the most, hands down, it's Southern Africa. Hands down. Really? Oh, hands down. Yeah, they have it all. What would you be looking to see in particular? So a lot of the dwarf bitus. So bitus genus bitus like um, puff adders and gaboon uh, vipers are all in that genus bitus. But there's a lot of small species. Um, I found a couple roadkill bitus claudalis, which is the horned viper, horned adder. They call them adders over there. Um, But there's a lot of these small ones. There's the mini horned adder, which is really cool. Um, That's what I would really go after. But Southern Africa has a lot of really neat stuff. It has a lot of different cobras. It has spitting cobras. It's got mambas. It's got crazy amount of gecko diversity. It's a fantastic place. Sounds like there's a lot of ways to die. <laughs> yeah. Be safe. Yeah. 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 So is that uh, something that would you like to do that for work or do you think you'll get over there for just a vacation or something like that? Definitely not for work. <laughs> They're not sending him out there. It is 90% North, or actually pretty much 100% North Carolina since I work for the North Carolina government. Um, but I do occasionally get into South Carolina because we have partners that work on the same species. So sometimes I go down there for meetings and stuff, but very rarely. Um but Namibia would just be a passion. Not Namibia, Southern Africa. South Africa, Namibia, Swaziland, all that would be more of just a passionate thing. I, I just want to go. I went when I was an undergrad, but I got just a little bit of a taste. I, w- I want to go back and quench my thirst. Go <laughs> see a lot of different unique stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Any? Do you have any interest in like the you know the mammals there? And yeah. Yeah, all the awesome megafauna. I guess you I could would call love it. to see. I think leopards would be the thing I I would love to see the most. Would be a leopard, and wild dogs are really neat, or painted dogs. However you say it, but I don't. Yeah. That sounds for wild dogs. What <laughs> does that not sound exciting? That doesn't to you? compute. Oh, they're savages, though. You should see them. Yeah, let's uh, wait. Like. I feel like I'm missing something. Is it just like a dog that's outside? Like what? Not exactly. Just, just Google wild dogs. <laughs> There's only, I think, one or two packs of them left in all of Namibia. They're, they're getting very rare. doesn't even look like a dog. Nope. That's not a dog. Let's not, let's not have the same name. They do not deserve to have the same name as dog. That is a different animal. You call them a wild wolf? It's almost like a hyena look. Right. It looks like a hyena hybrid. Those ears. Yep. I feel like I'm like the the wolf in Red Riding Hood. Like, what big ears you have? Um, But what? (laughs) But then their legs are so skinny. Yep. Yeah, it's almost like this one is like barriers. Those can't be called dogs. That's not. You want to pet them? No, you do not want to. No, they are not cute. Those look ferocious. Well, we get the teeth on that one. Yeah, no, not getting anywhere close to that. <laughs> but they'd be neat to see, though, from afar. Man, and they are, I mean, awesome looking animals, though. They serve the same niche as like hyenas, they kind of scavenge and stuff yeah. like that. Nope, they, they're. Hyenas, I guess, are group-based, but they they just seem to be very big packs of them. 
So cool. So yeah. if you could see any herp in the wild, just one to be your dream animal, what would it be? A tie between probably um, mini horned adder um, from Southern Africa or one of the long tailed rattlesnakes. Which, if you don't know what that those are, there's. And now we have to look up all these pictures because we don't know what they look like. <laughs> a mini horned adder. Yeah, they're fantastic. They're not all that rare either. The tongue. I like the tongue. That is cool. So you can see why they're called the mini. The mini horned adder. Some names actually, you know, are pretty obvious. And they're bitis cornata. Yeah. Kind of like the, um, like Cyclora. Like a rhino. A oh, yeah, be yeah. With the horned. I like when things like that cross I like over. when things are horned. I think I like <laughs> things. Yeah, but that's a super awesome animal. Yeah. And they're not big. They're just these small. I like small rattlesnakes, small, you know, vipers. Gotcha. Wow, you have seen so many different animals in your life already. <laughs> yeah. Would you ever, like, I don't know, write a book? <laughs> I know that's a big leap, but... I don't know. I'm not a bit... I struggle with writing. I write so much for work. Maybe. Yeah, I consider it. Definitely a chapter. Right, I mean, I just think it's so... I think so many Harpers have so much to tell. Um, yeah. That just even... Right, even just... A, a chapter like a compilation of like herper stories i think would be so interesting and then it might be out there already and i just don't well know it craig trumbauer has two books on his yeah, herping yeah. stories and we have them downstairs if you oh, want to read terrible. them uh, <laughs> but like how old are those or how old are those books no they're Very in recent? the last like 15 years oh, 10 okay. 15 years and then also stories are aged but yeah and then we got snakes and snake hunting that's in there i just think it should be yeah. like I don't know, every year thing of like a compilation of herp stories. Cause I think there's just so much like even you saying, you know, like it's, Oh, it's like the second one that's like ever been found of certain species. And yeah. That's like that. wild. Like, there's stuff like that. That is not like made headline news, but it's a headline. Like finding this yeah. second one is a major thing. And I think that should be recognized more. And you know, when we find freaking webbed footed, I already forgot the name of the chica. <laughs> like that animal is so wild like stuff like that like you put a Aliens picture that us. is an alien right if i put that on facebook right now i feel like so many people would be like what is that like alien like you know so many interesting things like people don't know about and so books are the way that people learn about them or you can go to nathan's or you, you go to his flicker so that should lead us nathan <laughs> if someone wanted to reach out to you or wanted to see more of your pictures and everything what is the best or where should they go uh, Flickr. Flickr. <laughs> I really wish I updated it more. I've in the last few years, I've just gotten slow. You know, full time, real job type stuff. But I do try to put images there every so often. So that's the main place. I am also on Instagram. Um, I've I have a private account that was meant in the beginning just for my family and friends, but I've toyed with making that public um, or making a public account. I might do that in the future. 
Um, so maybe you have so many great pictures. Them. You definitely should have. All right. So a common thing that we see among herpers also is that they have amazing pictures and they don't like to post them. To, they don't have Instagrams. Yeah. yeah. So but, when I first got my Instagram account, it was like 2014. It was just cell phone images. It, it wasn't even herp based. You know, there's a lot of herps just because it's my life is formed around that. But my intent was just that family and friends have something separate than Facebook that, you know, it's just people I interact with, high school friends, whatever. And I have so many herpers that try to follow me. And I, I commonly think about making a public account um, just because I share sensitive data that shouldn't be made publicly available, stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, maybe I'll do it soon. I don't know. Is I need- there special care taken to not show surroundings of these animals? Oh yeah. Yeah. There, there's a couple images that, that you could probably know exactly where that animal was found by looking at it. If you knew that area, but typically I don't, I used to do a lot of what we used to call herp and habitat where you got the herp in the corner and you see the whole habitat. And I've stopped doing that because people can point and be like, you're exactly right there. Mm. and um over the country it's not like a huge thing but there's certain places that just get so much herper traffic that it's not even anymore about people collecting the animals it's just like x number of people can go to this site maximum like more than that it's just trampling on vegetation that's important like we have issues with gopher frog wetlands and other rare amphibians that people just Every year, go in there, and they're like, while the frogs are calling and trying to mate and do their thing, catching them, taking photos, and it's innocent. They mm. wanted to get a photo of a gopher frog, but or any rare animal. But in those really in those moments when you have frogs calling, that is specifically there trying to do a specific business, and you going in there is interrupting that. As innocent as it, as it is, you know, but, but you know, then somebody else, you know, the next night might come in there and do the same thing. So. Um, a lot of our surveys try to take that into account. We don't try to go out there and have to get a photo of an individual for a voucher. Acoustic is fine because we don't want to mess with them while they're doing that. Um, so it's a hard thing to balance. So there's a lot of times that I post things or I don't post things like um, trying to think like certain species that call in the winter. I won't even post them until it's July because I don't want people to be like, oh, they're, they're going right now. We need to go to the pond. Because it just just draws too much attention, which is unfortunate, but it's how things are. And I think most people approach it an innocent, like I just want to see the thing, right. I want to learn more about it, I just want a photo, and that's great. Um, but it's just bad when so many people at one time bombard an area. Right. Yeah, we've balance. heard that. We've heard that from so many different people. And if you lay a tin down and then you have four other people check yeah. it day after day. And then yep. you're get your that's pointless. That's for a pain. You at least. Right. Yeah. Yep. So Nathan, thank you so much for being on. Right. Uh for us, Port City Pythons, PortCityPythons.com, Port City Pythons on Instagram, Facebook. YouTube. We have on YouTube. shirts and we have shirts available animals. and snakes available. Um other than that, that's really all we have for you. Hit us up if you want to put stickers up on the wall behind us. And um, once again, Nathan Shepard, thank you so much for yeah. hanging out with us. Thanks for having me. So much. <laughs>
Have a good night, everybody. Sicilians. Sicilians. Travis Weinman calls them wormphibians. Wormphibians. <laughs> and I like that. <laughs> okay.